Amen. We are in a sermon series studying through the book of Hebrews. It's called Jesus First. Of all the things that we give our attention to, our priority to, our time and energy and effort towards, we believe scripture calls us to put Jesus first in our lives. It's kind of shocking. Last Sunday it was really cold and not that many people showed up. This Sunday it's a lot warmer and a lot of people are, a lot more people are here this morning. We felt safer stepping out the door on a warm, sunny morning. Um, we're going to be studying through chapter number two. It's the second week, chapter number two. We're not going to get that every week, but this week, second week, second chapter. Yeah? Oh, just makes my heart happy. Um, if you've been following the world of professional chess, which I know you have been, but in case you missed, this guy, Magnus Carlsen, look at that face. He has been for seven years dominant in every way. In classical chess, nobody can touch him. In speed chess, okay, he struggled for a little while, but for the last two years, unbeatable. In bullet chess, where you play a game, in two minutes, he's the best. Now, when you get to be the best, you have some advantages. See, when you're just working your way up the ranks in the chess world, it's just about you and your knowledge and your ability over the board. But when you get to Magnus's caliber, every single tournament, he has a list of everybody that he's gonna play. And like many different professional sports, he studies the strategy of his opponent before the game. One of his greatest opponent, opponents is American chess player Hikaru Nakamura. And you could go online and find every game that every chess grandmaster has ever played. In case you're looking for something to do this afternoon, you can go do that. Now, if Magnus were to try and study every single game, that would take a long time, because there's a lot out there. So what Magnus is able to do, because he wins a lot, so he makes a lot of money, so he has a lot of money, is he hires a team of people to go and study every single game that his opponent has played, to identify their strategic themes, some of the styles of their play, and then to teach Magnus the most important things he needs to know so that he's ready for his competition, and it apparently works because he keeps winning. Now, if I were to suddenly feel compelled to try and join Team Magnus, I would have to pull together some sort of list of my chess abilities, right? I would have to demonstrate my knowledge of strategy, my competency in tactics, my game performance. And if I did that, and I submitted it all to Magnus, he would definitely not hire me <laughs> to be on his team because I'm not good enough. Magnus operates his little chess world in what's called a meritocracy, right? If you have done enough, if you've proven you're good enough, smart enough, you know, you've achieved enough, you've performed well enough, then you get to be on the team. And it turns out that this is actually a pretty common way that we work in the world around us. Heck, it starts when we're in elementary school 
and we're playing kickball on the playground. It's a meritocracy. Who am I going to choose for the team? Is it the kid who went through puberty two years before everybody else? You better believe it. He's on my team. He's got a beard. He's on my team. His name was Jeff Arsenal, by the way. Uh, but I wonder, when we live in a world that bases everything on our power and our performance, our achievements and our accomplishments, are we in risk of starting to think that maybe, just maybe, that's how God runs his kingdom as well? I think we might be in danger of getting infected by that idea, and therefore I want us to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 2, which in my Bible is titled, Warning to Pay Attention, and then Jesus Became Fully Human. And I want us to try to get not just into our brains, but to try to get into our hearts the significance of this idea that when God wanted us to know what kind of a God he is and what kind of a universe he's trying to run, he became fully human. Something that might be easy to, to somewhat comprehend, but I think my, my, my hope is it, it, it softens our hearts for understanding who God is and what God's trying to do in our lives and through our lives today. Uh, I'm going to read the whole of chapter 2, 18 verses. So as Asa's preschool teacher likes to say, put your listening ears on, everybody. Uh, I'd encourage you to grab your own Bible and follow along. I'm going to read the words on the screen, and then we're going to dive in and just walk through Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore... To what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you cared for him? You made humankind a little lower than the angels and you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in, slaver, in, held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Pray with me. God, as we've said, we want to hear your voice, and we know that the sound of your voice sounds just like your words in Scripture. May our greatest desire be to hear what you have to say to us this day. Amen. Okay, four things in these 18 verses. Usually I want to talk about three things, but today I want to talk about four things. Here we go. Warnings, sufferings, shame, and I'd like to talk for just a moment about you, if that's all right. And I'm going to do it in front of you. <laughs> so the book of Hebrews can be uh, broken up into four pretty clear main sections. And each of those main sections has a warning in it. And this is our first warning. And the warning is, pay attention. And here's the logic that the author of Hebrews uses. He's talking, as you recall, to a group of Jewish Jesus followers living in the Roman Empire. And so these Jewish Jesus followers know the story and the faith of the Old Testament very well. And so he says, the author of Hebrews says, you guys remember when God spoke to Moses through an angel on Mount Sinai? Uh, yeah, we're Jewish Jesus followers like we know this story very well. It's very important. Right, okay. Do you remember how God, through the angel, gave Moses the law, or as they would call it, Torah? Yeah. Yeah, we know that. We've basically dedicated our lives as a nation for 2,000 years to following the Torah. We know what this is. We know this is a big deal. And then the author says, okay, okay. That was a big deal. The words God spoke to Moses through the angel, big deal. The words of Jesus 
are a bigger deal. And so, if obedience to the law was a serious matter for Israel, they gave their utmost attention, concern, effort to following the law God gave, then faithfulness to Christ must be an even more serious matter for us. God said, of all the words I've spoken throughout all history, the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and the death of resurrection Christ, of, of Christ are the most important thing you could possibly understand about who God is. So pay close attention. And that comes first, both following chapter one that we talked about last week, but it leads pretty clearly into chapter two, the rest of chapter two, which talks about the fact that Jesus was fully human. So we're going to look at a few things about the life of Jesus, and we're going to look at them after hearing a warning, an exhortation to pay attention. I'm not saying pay attention to me. I'm saying pay attention to God. First thing, um, in chapter two, the author spends a lot of time talking about the fact of Jesus's great suffering. He suffered many things. But it's interesting, because at the beginning, the whole of chapter one was talking about how amazing angels are. It's like we got this resume for angels. They're these incredible, powerful, celestial beings. And then we get the resume for humans. Okay, they're a little lower than angels, but the text said God crowned humans with honor and glory. Woo! Pretty sweet. What is that honor and glory? Scripture tells us that it is the fact that when God made humans, he created them uniquely with his image stamped upon them. That is the honor and glory God gives to humanity. So, angels, pretty great. Humans, somehow a little lower than angels, but also pretty great. What's Jesus' resume? Chapter 2 gives us four things on the resume of God's Son coming to earth. He was humbled, or you could say he was humiliated. He suffered. At the hands of sinful men throughout his life, he was treated very badly. He endured great temptation, and then at the end of his life, he died. What kind of a resume is that? This is not, this, this is not like, oh, wow, that's an amazing list of accomplishment, Jesus, accomplishments, Jesus. This is a little bit of a sad, heavy, according to many means of evaluation, you'd call this a disappointing list of accomplishments. Here's what it makes me think about. If we live in this world of power and performance, of you make the team if you've got enough skills and ability, in a world that loves power and performance, are we willing? Are you willing to embrace suffering for the good of others as the definition of the greatest possible achievement? Christ came to inaugurate what is often called an upside-down kingdom. Everything that in the world around us is considered greatest, in the kingdom of God, it's considered least. And everything in the world around us that's considered least and important in the kingdom of God is considered most important. If Christ's greatest accomplishment was his suffering for our behalf, are we willing to consider our suffering on behalf of others our greatest accomplishment in life as well? I was reading a book um, 
by a pastor, author, and he was telling the story of this um, woman in his congregation, an elderly woman, a single woman, who was looking for how God was calling her to, to carry out his will in her life. And one of the things this woman had cared about for a long time was the lives of unborn children. And through a ministry of the church, the woman was introduced to a 16-year-old girl who had become pregnant. And not only had this 16-year-old girl become pregnant, but when her parents found out, her parents had kicked her out of the house. So this elderly woman, wondering how she could express God's love, coming into, you know, into a relationship with a person right in the middle of something she cared about deeper, this elderly woman said, why don't you move into my basement? Went to the doctor's appointments with her, held her hand and cried with her when she was making hard decisions. And when the young girl decided to keep the baby, said, of course you can continue to live in my basement. And this single woman became a sort of grandmother to this new baby and to this young girl. If this elderly woman had said, you need to perform or achieve or accomplish enough in order for me to love you, I think the story would have been different. But instead, this woman asked, how much am I willing to suffer? What cost am I willing to pay to love and bring good to another? That is what it means when we consider that Jesus became fully human. He's showing us just how high of a cost he's willing to pay. And then in the text, it, it goes on to say, and Jesus became fully human, experiencing everything we've ever experienced, experiencing any temptation we've ever had, any suffering we've ever had. Jesus himself experienced it. And there's this line that it says, and Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. I was thinking to myself, if, if I were to make a list, I don't plan to do this, just for the record, but if I were, if I were to make a list of all of my biggest mistakes, of all of the worst thoughts I've ever thought, of all of the most regrettable, most shameful decisions I've ever made, if I were to make a list, and I were to hold it up, and then I were to say, hey, anybody want to associate yourself with this guy? Whoo! I bet we could all make a list like that, that it would be really easy for anybody around us to go. But Jesus, Jesus' view of us, his relationship with us is not based on our behavior what we have said, or what we have done, or what we have thought, but it is based on our identity. And here's our identity. We were made by God and marked with his image, and that is the one and only thing that matters to God when he considers whether he will closely associate with us. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. My two littlest kids, Asa and Naomi, four and six. They're about the same size, though. When these two play together, it is the cutest thing, right? I mean, there's like, there's giggling, there's imaginary 
being creatures all around the room. There's imaginary like adventures happening. I'm looking at the room in front of me. I don't see what it is that they see, but they see it. And when they're playing together, it's just wonderful. Little kids playing together is wonderful. When they're fighting with one another, it's not as wonderful. The health of my eardrums comes deeply into question on a regular basis as the volume of their screaming increases and then suddenly everybody in the house needs to scream just to hear one another. Asa has nearly perfected the ability to get a big chunk of any of his sister's hairs and yank on it in order to accomplish his will in the world. Oh, I love my son Asa. So over Christmas break, I went winter camping, and I took the big three. And I thought to myself, particularly for Naomi, I thought to myself, you know, maybe Naomi will be glad to have a couple days without fear of loss of hair. <laughs> so we're up at Rocky Mountain National Park. We're going camping. It's cold. Uh, we actually went on the night that we got 13 inches of snow down here in Denver. We only got three inches up there, so it wasn't that bad. And we're sitting around the campfire, we're eating our dinner, and Naomi says to me, Dad, can we FaceTime Asa before he goes to bed? Because I miss him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Somehow, Naomi looks at her brother with all the pain she has suffered at his hands, and she loves him, and she misses him, and she wants to call him and say goodnight before bed. And Jesus calls us, his brothers and sisters. Which makes me ask, if Jesus is not ashamed to closely identify himself with us in the most intimate sort of way, are we unashamed to closely identify ourselves with him, that can be complicated in this world because Jesus' name is used to proclaim and stand for all sorts of different things. And we can sort of feel like we need to hedge our bets sometimes because of the complicated world we live in. But the truth of a God who would endure the humiliation and the suffering and the temptation and death on our behalf is the truth of a God that I am proud and glad to be closely associated with. And may that be so for all of us in all of our lives. Which brings us to the last topic of the morning. You. You. I've, I've read the Gospels, I've studied the Gospels, I've, I've uh, learned about, thought about, prayed over the story of the life of Jesus since I was a little boy. Uh, I've done it in the context of church for devotions and personal spiritual formation. I've done it in the context of school, schooling and education. And there's been many times when I've been reading the story of Jesus and thinking about the life of this man. God become human, humbled himself, tempted, suffered, died. And I've just thought, why? Why would God do that? The answer the text gives is Christ did that first to share in our humanity. He wanted to be with us so much that he became just like us. That's how close he wanted to be. Why would he do that? He suffered temptation so that he could help anyone experiencing 
any temptation. And he suffered death in order to defeat the power of death so that anybody who has ever felt the fear of dying might know that in Christ there is a power even greater. I was remembering uh, when I was in seminary, I had a mentor, I had a friend, his name was Jim Dungeness, and Jim was a mountaineer. Um, and therefore, Jim was really connected to the climbing and mountaineering community in the, in the Denver area, in the Colorado Rockies. And um, during these years that I knew Jim, there was a young climber in his young 20s who, uh, on a winter backcountry mountaineering uh, trip, uh, died in an avalanche. It was a tragic death, a highly accomplished, highly skilled Climber, uh, tragic death. And at that time, I read a couple newspaper articles that were, that, that were, they were just sort of like, oh, cringy to read because the newspaper articles announced this young climber's death and then went on to say, was he maybe a little foolish in, in climbing where he was climbing or did he maybe make bad decisions or they basically questioned whether or not he had made the right decisions or done the right things. And it was just a little heartbreaking. But I also remember Jim and how instantly he drove down to Colorado Springs where this young man's family was. He brought a meal, he delivered it to the family, and he said, if there's anything you need to help, I'm there. He was part of the rescue effort the very next day to get out and try and find the young man's body. Jim's response was not, oh, you know, is climbing too dangerous, any of these questions? Rather, Jim's response was, climbers are my people. And so I help my people. Because Jim was a mountaineer and somebody in his community got hurt and so he helped. I think in a way, what Hebrews chapter 2 is trying to say is that Jesus came down to earth because he wanted to say, sinners are my people and I help my people. Why is it that Jesus endured all that he endured? Why is it that his list of accolades is suffering, temptation, and death? He did that all for sinners, which means he did that for you. And so what does that mean for us and the way that we live our lives each day? First, I think we all have to struggle with the question, of who am I really? What do I, what do I really believe to be true about myself, about my identity? The first thing we need to do when we recognize that God loved us so much, he came down to become one of us, to give us his love. The first thing we need to do is we need to know our true identity. We say we're on a shared journey of transformation as a church, that's in our mission statement. And in our priority callings, we say that's a transformation into the person God made you to be. Our true identity is the one that God gives to us. There's this old children's story. I've always loved it. Um, it's about, uh, it's by author Max Lucado, and it's about these carved toy people called the Wemmicks. And the Wemmicks are a strange little people because they walk around, and whenever they see another Wemmick doing something excellent, Maybe the Wemmick is able to do cartwheels or give a wonderful speech or their paint is very shiny and neat. They'll pull out a sticker, a gold star, and they'll stick it on that Wemmick. 
And whenever they see a Wemmick doing something foolish, maybe they stumble and fall or they scratch the paint on their wood, they'll pull out a sticker, a gray dot, and they'll stick it on that Wemmick. And the story goes that sometimes if they saw a Wemmick filled with gold stars, they would give them another gold star just because they had so many gold stars. Or if they saw a Wemmick filled with gray dots, they would give them another gray dot just because they had so many gray dots. I wonder if we've experienced this kind of a world to live in where we constantly have to perform to achieve to get those gold stars or avoid those gold dots. There was one young woman named Puccinello, just like that name. And Puccinello had a lot of gray dots on his carved wooden Wemmick body. And one day as Puccinello was walking along, he ran into another Wemmick. And he immediately noticed this other Wemmick didn't have a single sticker on her anywhere. And so he said to her, why don't you have any stickers on you? How do you do that? She said, oh, it's easy. Every day I walk up the hill to the woodcarver. And I go and sit and I visit with a woodcarver. His name is Eli. And we talk. And when I go and talk every day to Eli, the stickers don't stick. So Punchinello went up to Eli's shop and he sat and Eli just wanted to hear about his day and talk to him and interact with him. And at the end of the conversation and at the end of every single conversation, Eli looked at Punchinello and said, and remember, I made you, and I don't make mistakes. And every time Puccinello heard that, one of his gray dots would fall off. I wonder if we don't need that same voice of our maker reminding us daily that all the gold stars and all the dots that we go around fighting about on a regular basis don't matter at all when we can hear God's true voice speaking to us. And the moment we can start getting that voice, not just into our heads, but into our hearts to know our identity, it means we can start to live not like who we think we should be, not like how other people tell us they expect us to be. We can live like who we are as God's child made in God's image. God says that you are, go to the next slide, made by God. You were at your creation stamped with the image of God and you are declared by God as a person with infinite worth. Why do I say infinite worth? Because the worth or the value of something is identified by the price people are willing to pay. And what price was God willing to pay for your life? He was willing to pay the price of his own life. That is an infinite price that God was willing to pay for you. If we can know our identity, we can start to live not like the person we think we should be or we think others expect us to be, but we can start to live like the person God made us to be. And when we do that, we then also get freed up to stop playing the sticker game and instead find the freedom to simply know and celebrate our people. And our people are the same as God's. 
anybody who's in need of God's love and mercy and forgiveness. <laughs> Sinners are God's people. And that's who we want to be all about, closely associating ourselves with, willing to pay whatever cost. It's like up in the giant schoolyard of the sky when it was time to pick kickball teams. I hope there's kickball teams in heaven. That would make me happy. God looked around and said, all the sinners are the ones on my team. Would you pray with me? God, we do. We confess that we believe so many things. We believe hurtful things, harmful things. We believe lies that somehow we were told decades ago. We confess that we listen to voices that we know to be harmful and false. And confessing that, we, we hear this truth that you, our God, our creator, looked down at the mess of this world and you didn't keep far away, but you rather came down and you became closer than we ever thought imaginable. You became one of us. Because you wanted to say that you're with us in every imaginable way. So God, confessing the struggles, the struggles in our own minds, the struggles that we hear from voices around us, uh, we pray again, God, help us to be people who every day pause and listen for your voice, the one true voice telling us who we really are and whose we really are. Pray this in your name, God, the Father Almighty, who made not only the whole universe, but made each and every one of us. We pray this in your name, Jesus, the Son, who became like us, so that you might die and be risen again for us. We pray this in your name, Holy Spirit, who is with us, strengthening us, guiding us, and speaking truth to us every day. Amen.